Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to tackle uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. This is our final message in this book, but I hope that this isn't the final time that you're learning and reading and studying this book. I've learned a lot as we've gone through this book, and I trust that God has taught you a lot, and, and we've learned together about His purposes in our lives, even when things don't look as we think they should. We know that God is at work in our lives in a deeper way. In this book, we are taught about approaching suffering, and it is about how we live in the midst of suffering, how we trust God in the midst of suffering, and how God uses suffering in our life. And, and, I, and I don't know about you, but for me, First Peter was never kind of the book I thought about when I thought about suffering. I mean, we're familiar with Job, and I tend to think about Job when I think about suffering or think about Paul talking about dying daily in 1 Corinthians. But now I have a new appreciation for Peter because Peter really is writing this book and giving this instruction to the church, to us, in the midst of persecution and suffering and handling that suffering, leaning into, living with that suffering, recognizing God has a plan and a purpose in the midst of all this. When we think about this book and as we think about Peter writing this book to us, we certainly see a lot of growth and maturity on the part of Peter As he writes this letter, at the very beginning we think about Peter and his brother Andrew following John the Baptist, being disciples of John the Baptist, not quite to the intensity that they were disciples of Jesus, but when John the Baptist points out Jesus as the coming one and Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, one of the reasons they quickly follow is because they'd heard from John the Baptist. They've heard of a coming one, and Jesus fit that bill. But as Peter walks with Jesus throughout the Gospels in his life, he's always trying to hear and understand and pick up what Jesus is all about. It's kind of like us many times. I, I hope that in your Christian life, that as you came to Christ, at the beginning of your walk with Jesus, that Jesus is much deeper and much more profound, and he calls from us a relationship that is more significant than you ever thought. And this is kind of the picture we see in Peter's life as we see him progressing through the Gospels, walking with Jesus and learning about him. We learn that Jesus really is the Savior and Lord and Master of our souls, and that reaches into every area of our life, and we see that happening in Peter's life. Certainly, there are certain high points in Peter's life in the Gospels, like when all the disciples began walking away because Jesus was making some very hard statements in John chapter 6, and it's Peter who refuses to leave, and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One. 
of God. Certainly that's a profound statement. In most cases, Peter was listed amongst the first apostles and he was seen as the leader and in part that was because he was energetic and spontaneous and he oftentimes dared to say things that people would only think. And so when Peter is the one in the middle of the Gospels, usually at all, in all of the Gospels, a high point is that confession at Caesarea Philippi when he's asked, when the disciples are asked, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter that says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So these are all high points in Peter's life. And certainly he's learning to understand Jesus but he's not quite to where he presents himself in First Peter because one of the troubles and struggles he has is this idea of Jesus' ministry as the Messiah and the inclusion of suffering and death as part of that mission. He believed that Jesus had great power as Jesus demonstrated in his healing and his his ability even to raise people from the dead. His command over the evil spirits. And yet Peter struggled with this idea that this Messiah would go to the cross. And sometimes, as I've said, we have struggles with that. We have a hard time figuring out how suffering fits into our life. We, we like the picture of following Jesus and our life all fits together. And it's peace and happiness and positive, positive, positive till we get to that kingdom. But that's not the road of the gospel. It's not the road Jesus demonstrates to us as an example for us to follow. And Peter comes to the place where he recognizes that Suffering and persecution is part of this road. We can think of Peter, his quick response on the night that Jesus was betrayed and the soldiers came, you remember? Peter quickly pulls out his sword and slices off Malchus's ear. And you can be sure that Peter wasn't striking for the ear. But to show the devotion that Peter, that Peter had for Jesus, he was going to stand and fight. He was ready to see the Messiah's kingdom come. But Jesus corrected him in that moment. Corrected him that this was not the kind of kingdom he was bringing and that he was willing to go with them. Of course, he was distraught and he fled with all the other disciples. He certainly followed behind in the crowd as they took Jesus' and first trial to Annas' house. But he was, he was shamed. He was broken. He wasn't understanding fully what the work of Jesus was all about. And I, I identify with that. There, you know, in my life, many times, As I try to follow Jesus, I think I have the map and the understanding. But Jesus has a different plan. Jesus shows me something deeper, more profound, more important than what I often think about. 
And Peter recognizes this, grows and learns from this. This is why he can talk about suffering so much in this book and why it is so important to us. The grace of God seems so evident to us as we think about the life of Peter and his denials of Jesus at his trial. And then after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus comes to Peter and in a sense has a conversation with him where he reaffirms and recalls and includes Peter again by asking, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Three times, matching the three denials. Feed my sheep. And as we think about that, and we think about where Peter is in writing this letter, one thing that we should agree on, that we should hold to, is that Peter has been faithful in feeding his sheep. We hear his words written to us, written to believers down through the ages. These are God's words coming through Peter, and Peter is giving instruction and encouragement, direction to us as an apostle of Jesus Christ, fulfilling that call to feed his sheep. And so as we hear these words, and as we've studied this book, so many times we can get comfortable with thinking it's a good talk, it's an interesting idea. It's not about that. It's food for our soul. It's Peter bringing us the truth of God that we might hear from God and live our lives in accordance with that truth because in that way we honor God and we actually find life. God is for us that we might enter into what is life. Not life in accordance with what we think life is. Not life without any suffering, without any struggles, without any trials. No, real life where God's power is made evident in our hearts and lives because we stand firm on the truth of the gospel in the midst of suffering and difficulty, trusting God that he has the direction and the guidance we need in our life to go where he is calling us to go. So these are important words. They are food for our souls. And so we're finishing up our study of 1 Peter, but I hope we never finish with reading the book, studying and learning it, because it's a food for us. This morning we want to read the whole book, the whole chapter 5. We're finishing it. So uh, let's start in chapter 5, verse 1, and read to the end of the, the chapter. To the elders among you I appeal as fellow, as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Watch over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but, be, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders." All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand 
that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 11. I'm going to try to tackle each exhortation. I I see three exhortations and a promise. Focusing on 1 through 11. So first, we're looking at the first word of exhortation. And, and Peter is ending his book and he's giving particular exhortations to the people and to us as to what we should hear as he closes. So first word of exhortation is to leaders and the church. It is a section to the elders of the church. And it's really 1 through 5. Uh, 1 through 5a, the leaders and elders of the church. And this has to do with the makeup of the church, the relationship of the church. And many have wondered, why, why talk to the elders here? This seems to drop in out of nowhere. It's not directly connected with other parts of First Peter. But I would say in one way it is directly connected with First Peter. Back in chapter 4, verse 17... Peter said, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter's talking about this correction, this judgment, this not really judgment in the sense of condemnation, but judgment in the sense of assessment, challenge, testing. And it really is a time when uh, this is kind of a quote from Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 9, when the Israelite people were being taken off into Babylon. And this was all a part of their judgment because they were not being faithful and obedient to God. And when that happened, if you go back and read Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 9, you have the judgment, the correction begins at the house of God, begins at the temple. But in Ezekiel chapter 3, it also says it begins with the elders, with the leaders of that temple. So it seems natural then, given that background, that Peter would say, be careful, judgment, the tests of suffering persecution will start at the house of God because in that suffering and persecution in this world, we'll see the truth of the gospel brought forth. It'll be a tested faith. 
But then on top of that, be careful leaders because that test will begin with you and you have a responsibility in that testing, in that time of suffering, which Peter is writing about. And so Peter writes this and directs his uh, instruction to the elders because it's essential that a church function as a community, that there are leaders in the uh, family of faith, in the church, and that those leaders are being followed by those who are part of the church. There is a, a cooperation and a love and a respect, and, and a healthy church is a healthy place for the believers of the New Testament, the followers of Jesus, to find support and strength in the time of testing. So this becomes an essential point for for Peter. The church is going to stand in this day of suffering and persecution. The church needs to be healthy and 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 helpful and a place where there is nurture and care. I think also since Peter was probably relying on Ezekiel that uh, a passage from Ezekiel that gives instruction probably is what Peter's relying on here when he says elders must shepherd the flock. And I think of the the condemnation, the correction that was given to the elders and shepherds of the flock in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 34 verses 1 through 4. Hear these words. And I think it's kind of the backdrop for Peter and his instruction to the elders. God said, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. In chapter 34, verses 1 through 4 in Ezekiel. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourself with the wool, slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have been harsh, ruled harshly and and brutally. I think Peter seems to be using this as a template. And he's encouraging the church in the first century and encouraging us that in times of testing and trial and difficulty for the church, there must be a structure of care. And this care must be seen and pictured in the lives of the elders, of their obligation and responsibility to shepherd, for, to care for the people in the church. They're not in that role for themselves. They're in that role as servants, as shepherds for the people of the church. And when the church is shepherded by godly elders, the church is strengthened because the community of believers comes around and stands together and there's a cooperation and a love and a community together. Peter knows how important and how essential that is that he brings, brings this in as he closes his letter as he's addressing the church in the midst of suffering and persecution. So that's exhortation number one. And I think of someone once said, before we leave this point, the world at its worst needs the church at its best. And Peter is accentuating that point by calling forth from the elders uh, a, a, 
a plan of shepherding and caring for the congregation. But notice verse 5, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. There is an obligation on the part of the congregation to submit to the elders in this relationship as well. So that's exhortation number one. Second word of exhortation is to be humble. We see this the second half of verse 5. Now sometimes, you know, we, we... grow accustomed to the verses and the paragraph breaks and those are not in the original uh, documents of the New Testament. And it really is the, the publisher, Stephanus, in 1551 who put the numbers in there. Now, we appreciate the numbers. It helps us get around. But sometimes they're not helpful. And in this case, they're not helpful because in the middle of verse 5 is really a new topic so in the same way, you, uh, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, period, new topic, all of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Here, this is a new topic, it's directed to us generally goes on in verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Favorite verses for sure, but important verses to be tied together in our understanding of what it means to be humble and to submit to God. It is a characteristic that is essential for us as believers and Peter highlights the importance of this And quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. As we think about humble, I want to tell you about a, uh, you know, the history of the church used to talk a lot about the seven deadly sins. And one of those was pride. When we think about humility, Peter is telling us to put on humility. What's the opposite, what's opposite to humility? Pride. And we have a hard time with that sometimes because we think, well, you know, you should be proud. We need self-esteem. That's what we need in our day. But one of the problems is, is that as you dig down at the layer after layer after layer of a person's heart, you get to the core of who they are. And oftentimes at the core of who we are is a belief that we are right. We know what is best. We govern the destiny of our life. And in a sense... We like to stand in the place of God. And why does God oppose the proud? Because it is a direct affront to him. I think there was an uh, early saint, Saint John Cassian, from 415 A.D., who was the first guy to institute the monasteries, which you know, we can debate about that, but the intention was to be holy, to be transformed. He often referred to this passage in in 1 Peter 5, 5 about the danger of pride. And I would like to read a quote of his. How great is the evil of pride that it rightly has no angel, no other virtues opposed to it, but God himself as its adversary. It should be noted that it is never said of those who are entitled to other sin, entangled with other sins, that God 
resists them. I mean, it is not said that God is opposed to the gluttonous or the fornicators or the passionate or the covetousness, but only to the proud. For those sins react only on those who commit them, but this one has more properly to do with God himself, and therefore it is especially right that it should have him to oppose it. What John Cassian is saying is pride is evil to the core. It can be said that pride is what motivated the first sin of our parents in the Garden of Eden. So pride is bad. It is especially dangerous because it works in the core of our heart. I came across a uh, counseling session of a 17-year-old woman who was looking for help untangling her jumbled life. And it's a pretty jumbled life, but here's how it goes. She was young, to be sure, but about, about all kinds of life experiences, she readily would say, been there, done that. She had just been released from a corrections institute, her offense, stealing mail with the hopes of finding money, She recently had given up her second child for adoption and was trying to raise her first child. She took up drinking and promiscuity and drugs at age 14, bearing her first child at age 15. She and her current boyfriend planned to marry. And the counselor suggested that she might make a good start of it at rebuilding her life if she waited to sleep with him until she was married. Her response... I don't believe that much in God. For us, we can say, yeah, she's messed up. But her flaw is our flaw. The truth of it is that I don't believe that much in God. It's not only the statement of someone who has all kinds of problems. It is the statement of us who hide behind our pretty good-looking lives. And yet, we are the determiners. We are the ones who decide what will happen and what is right and what is good and how our lives will go. We are not standing before God with bended knee and broken hearts, knowing of our dependence on God and His Word And his direction over our lives. No matter where it goes. That's why we have struggles when we face suffering and difficulty and persecution. Because we want our lives to be different. But Peter is saying, no. Practice humility. Put on humbleness. Look at what he adds to that. You know, God opposes the humble. But in verse 6, humble yourselves ever under God's mighty hand. Trust in him. He will lift you up. He will provide for you. You don't need to do all the work to sustain your life and make yourself happy. What you need to do is stand as a trusting believer in humbleness. Waiting for God to do what he does. Cast your cares on him. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. What better news is there? Can we trust that enough? Peter's saying, humble yourselves. Live with humility. Don't let the offense of pride 
put God against you. He won't really be against you, but he will bring his correction against you. So we need to be humble. That's Peter's second exhortation. Third, the exhortation is to be ready and resist the enemy. And throughout the letter of Peter, we learn about God's great concern and the promises of his salvation given to us as believers. He is deeply interested in our lives. God cares for us as his children. But the reason there is persecution and struggle in our lives is also because there is an enemy in this world. Persecution and suffering, as Peter will come to say and has said to us over and over, is a moment of testing and deeper trust and relying on God. But in that testing, there is an enemy. There is an evil one. The devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And because of that picture, he says, be alert, be of sober mind. Don't you think that if we were in the neighborhood and we were given a flash warning on our phone, uh, a lion is on the loose and he's in your zip code, we'd be alert. Um, Peter's using the same language. Realize what we're in. We're in a spiritual battle and sometimes we are not open and we're not looking and we don't think of the spiritual dimensions of the things that happen in our lives. We only think about our on the ground worldly perspective. Peter's saying be careful of that. So Peter gives us three exhortations. Elders and church members work together. Be a place of community. Be humble. Trust in God. He is worthy to be trusted. And be aware. Be alert. The enemy is engaged. And last, there's the promise. Verses 10 through 11. The God of grace called you to his eternal glory in Christ, who's given you a hope and a promise that you will one day be in Christ's kingdom after you have suffered for a while. Suffering is a part of that call. Know that he will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. The promise is that he will take care of us as we stand firm in our faith. There is a responsibility. We have to stand firm. This isn't just a promise that no matter what you do or how you live or if you stay faithful or not, God will provide for you. No, this is a promise to those who will stand firm, who will trust in God's word, who will yield their life to God and stand under his mighty hand. If we stand in that place, you can be assured. He is trustworthy. He will restore you. He will make you strong. He will make you stand in his kingdom. Sometimes it doesn't look like that. But it is the truth that we can bank on. I love that first word. He gives us really three verbs. He says... That 
He will restore you. He will make you strong, firm, and steadfast. It's not that these are particularly different words that we should tease them out and they do different things. It's more the case that they are are an avalanche of verbs together that Peter puts together and says, God will not be deterred. His plans and purposes will be fulfilled. You stay faithful. He will be faithful to you. Regardless of your circumstances. And then it concludes in verse 11. With the only conclusion you could have. And this conclusion pops up in the book. In other passages. We saw it back in chapter 4 verse 11. Where as Peter's talking about the wonder of what God has done for his people. He just breaks out in praise and adoration and doxology. And in the same way, Peter is overwhelmed that God will, the God of grace, will establish us. He will accomplish his purposes in us. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. As we close this book, we have to know God's purposes will be accomplished And his call for you and I is not to buck it up and to be strong, but it's to stand in the grace that he gives us. The God of all grace has given us mighty promises, has poured out his spirit into our heart, has filled us with the hope of the gospel. We have to walk in accordance with that. We have to hunger and thirst for that righteousness, that kingdom. We have to pursue God. But as we do, be assured, God's plans and promises and purposes will end in the dominion of Christ and the glory and power being his and we as his people included in the reign of Christ. This is what we must live for. This is the truth, as I say many times, this is the truth that will last throughout eternity. It is the truth that will define our lives. Let's stand in faithfulness to our Savior. Let's be the community he wants us to be. Let's be humble and firm, humble and trusting in our faith. Let's be alert and firm in our faith and hopeful in God's final outcome. Let's pray to God. Father, you are gracious and glorious loving and kind to us. Lord, we come clothed in the righteousness of Christ and knowing that there is nothing that we do that deserves your grace and your goodness, your forgiveness and your life and your mercy. But we have trusted in Jesus, the one and only Savior that you have sent into the world who brings life and gives us life and has conquered death by his resurrection in this life and brings a life of hope and peace in the midst of the difficulties of this life, knowing that your plan and purposes will come to fruition. And Lord, we pray that you fill us with hope, that you continue to make us your people, teach us to mature and grow and to stand in the faith, even as we see in Peter, that we understand in deeper and more profound ways what you are up to in our lives. And may we be humble, 
bowing our knee and bowing our hearts to you so that you accomplish your will and purposes in us. Make us a church. Make us a people. Give us alertness that we might stand for the grace of the gospel in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.